And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. It seemed too good to be true. Are you in the of the belief that Kevin Durant to the Knicks is a quote unquote done deal? I've been hearing strong leanings for Kevin Durant to go to New York. Nick fans were dreaming of a future where Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Zion Williamson would all be playing for the Knicks. We're getting KD, we're getting Kyrie, and I called the government, the ball is going to drop, we're getting Zion. Everybody Nick Nation, the rings are coming. Leading the franchise into a new era of greatness. What I love, do I lay my head on the pillow dreaming that Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, would come to the Knicks and get us that parade? Yes, I would love that. It wasn't just a pipe dream. It felt like it could actually happen. Well, from everything that I've been hearing over the last few days, Kyrie Irving is heading to Madison Square Garden with Kevin Durant. They are destined to go to MSG, which is why I put it at 95%. Except, of course, it didn't happen. Kevin Durant is going to sign with the Nets. He will join Kyrie Irving. You know, a remarkable turnaround for this Nets organization. This is the absolute worst day in the history of the New York Knicks franchise. I'm Chuck D. This is Shattered, Episode 7, The Reckoning. The story of how two superstars chose to play in New York, but didn't choose the Knicks. The Knicks' focus going into the 2018-2019 season was clear. The franchise would do everything they could to make the team as appealing as possible for the upcoming free agent class. Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Kemba Walker, and most importantly, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. That guiding principle led the Knicks in their choice for their next head coach. This is, uh, this is quite, quite humbling uh, to be sitting here today with you guys. Uh, I'm so honored uh, to be the head coach of the New York Knicks. I mean, you can't dream of this stuff. <laughs> David Fisdale's resume and reputation played perfectly into the Knicks' plans to go big game hunting in free agency. Fisdale was a key assistant coach with the Miami Heat during the LeBron Wade Bosch era. Ian Begley, SNY's NBA reporter and host of the putback, SNY.TV's weekly digital NBA show, says the 43-year-old coach was known as someone who could connect with the NBA's top stars. Well, certainly, I think 2019 was already a part of the conversation for them. He became this hot name, his connection to stars, uh, his ability to, to communicate with star players, like that factored in. They, you know, they, I, I think they became comfortable with David Fisdale too because of recommendations from the Heat. I think Pat Riley uh, had conversations with the Knicks about Fisdale, and I don't know who else did, but that was also part of their comfort level hearing from Miami people about David Fisdale. Despite coming off an unsuccessful tenure as head coach with the Memphis Grizzlies, Fisdale was considered a top head coaching candidate throughout the league. But for Fisdale, the Knicks' job offer was something he couldn't resist. Uh, 
the Knicks. <laughs> that it was the Knicks. I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I, I really just saw, you know, a team that's that struggled for a long time. That I knew if, if somehow I could turn it in the right direction, that can end up being something that, you know, a place I could be for a long time. And so. I was looking at it literally from that standpoint, and I felt like out of all of the jobs that were available, the biggest swing I felt like was the Knicks. The biggest, you know, the highest risk, the highest reward, I think, was the Knicks. And so I I went after it. I, I went for it. When the Knicks hired Fizdale, the franchise hadn't had a winning season in five years. It was not a perfect situation for any coach to walk into. But the Knicks did have two things going for them. The Knicks would have cap space to make a big move next summer in free agency. And the unicorn, Chris Stapp's Porzingis, was on the roster. Though he was still recovering from an ACL tear. Immediately, the emphasis for that upcoming season would be to lay the groundwork for successful future seasons. If you look back at our articles and the interviews with the fan base after I was hired, you know, a big part of what we were trying to do was just rebuild the team around uh, Chris Stapps and really try to, you know, put together a bunch of young quality talent with some with an infusion of possibly a big bet, you know, big free agent to play next to him and grow it from there. Mission number one for Fizdale was to get on the same page with Porzingis. The Knicks young star reportedly had been unhappy with the direction of the franchise. It was part of Fizdale's job to make sure Porzingis was still part of the program. That mission required a transatlantic trip to Latvia, where Fizdale and his wife were hosted by the Porzingis family. Where he was living is really cool. You see a lot of history, nice facility. They had a really great basketball facility there. You know, we went to a lot of dinners. I, I just hung out with his family, him and his family. It was fun, man. And uh, we really had a, had a great time. But part of that time included a rather unusual bonding activity. We did this like traditional, like, I don't know what we call it, but he took us to this Latvian like spa or something. And they beat me and my wife with trees. And, you know, it was a, a thousand degrees in this little hut. It was as hot as I've ever been. I mean, I was pouring sweat. And then they throw you in this ice cold water. And it was like, we did that for like hours. And it was amazing. You come out of it feeling amazing. The feel of the entire experience was authentic, to say the least. It was like this older woman and her son. And they they, they, they got you in the sweat lodge. They're, they're beating the hell out of you with these trees. And then by the time, like you go through this a few times, a few times. And I mean, you when you just finally at the point where you like want to tap out, they put you in this ice cold tub. They like levitate, like hold, put their hands on you, float in this ice cold tub. And it's like your whole, your brain basically, like you go almost into like this, like your body just shuts down basically. Like <laughs> tonic immobility <laughs> is kind of how it goes. And it was, uh, but we we really enjoyed it. It was a great trip. And uh, the time that I did get to spend with Chris Stapps, I really enjoyed it. We had some good, deep conversations about a lot of different stuff. And so like I said, my biggest regret is that I didn't get to, uh, but get, get, get to put him out there. With Porzingis rehabbing from his injury, Fizdale was left with a collection of players that, for the most part, all shared the same attributes. They were young, cheap, and completely unproven. That first season for Fizdale and the Knicks, that 2018-19 season, was kind of set up to be pretty bad. Mike Vorkanoff is the Athletics' Knicks reporter. 
the roster was, you know, really barren. The free agent additions in the summer were, were like Mario Hazonia, Noah Vonley, Michael Beasley. They gave so many minutes to Kevin Knox. It wasn't a situation where the Knicks, I think, were really trying to be competitive. They're just kind of trying to restart uh, a year zero, year one type of situation under Mills and Perry and bringing in David Fizzell as the new coach. Knox and Vonley led the Knicks in games started that season. Vonley was 23 years old and already on his fourth team in the NBA. And Knox was a 19-year-old rookie who, since that first season with Fisdale, has only started four more games in his career. We knew that team wasn't going to be a highly touted team from a win standpoint. Uh, most likely that we would be in the draft uh, unless the team just did something miraculous and overachieved and all of that. So it wasn't that big a surprise. But, you know, you personally, I wanted to obviously win more games but at the same time I wanted to do what was right for the longevity of the organization as well you know so it was the young kids really needed to get playing time to grow and, and play you know so we tried to do that the Knicks certainly went through growing pains that season after beating the Milwaukee Bucks on December 1st the Knicks would go on to lose 26 of the next 27 games it was everyone uh, really, you know, came into that year, I remember, with their eyes on free agency and their eyes on the draft because the number one pick that year was Zion Williamson. And, you know, it was like the Knicks were double barrel uh, shooting for both of those things, trying to get KD in free agency, get Zion in the draft, win the lottery, and then, you know, boom, in 2019-20, you've got the Holy Trinity there in New York playing in the Knicks uniform at MSG. The Knicks' pursuit of Durant and Irving mirrored their pursuit of LeBron James in the summer of the decision. In both circumstances, the Knicks had a losing season going into free agency. They were a blank slate with salary cap space, but with very little talent on the roster. There was one major difference between 2010 and 2019. This time around, the Knicks still had Chris Stapp's Porzingis, one of the NBA's brightest young stars. Durant even had a connection with Porzingis. KD was the one that gave Chris Stapps his unicorn nickname. Except the Knicks unicorn would soon end up being expelled from the garden. Breaking news, we can roll it because wow, Woj has since tweeted Dallas finalizing a trade to acquire Chris Stapps Porzingis. <laughs> the New York Times, Mark Stein, look at these- Chris Stapps Porzingis, the great Latvian hope for the Knicks franchise, was traded along with Tim Hardaway Jr. and Courtney Lee for DeAndre Jordan. Dennis Smith Jr. and two top 10 protected first round picks. I was surprised that there was only a few hours between, I think, Woj reporting that Chris Stapps had demanded the trade and then a trade happened. SNY's Ian Begley says the trade came together in an unusually quick manner. You know, usually you take a bunch of calls, you do some negotiating, you try to see what, what the best deal is that is out there that you can get. In this one, it was done within a few hours, and that surprised everybody. And I, I did hear in the aftermath that some teams wanted to get involved in the trade talks, and they weren't able to because the trade happened so fast. So it leaves you wondering about what the what else the Knicks could have gotten, might have gotten uh, in that trade. Uh, but nonetheless, here here we are uh, a few years later, and still no clear cut winner in my mind for that Porzingis deal. Begley believes that the reason for the quick trigger was that the Knicks front office was prepared to deal Porzingis, but didn't want to act first. I never thought that the Knicks would, would pull that deal unless they got to the point where they Chris Stapps demanded the trade. And so the way they were able to tell the story, and it's accurate, Chris Stapps did demand a trade, but it, 
it seems like they were they were hopeful to get to that point where they could say, hey, Chris Stapps wanted out and that's why we traded him. Because they knew, I think, that you would never be able to win the, the PR battle in the aftermath of the trade if Porzingis hadn't asked for it himself. And I think that's why we got to that point. That came, I think that came more from Chris Stapps' camp that they were ready to make the change. Fisdale says from what he understands, Porzingis' team and the Knicks' front office had a meeting where Porzingis' side conveyed that the team's young star wanted to be traded. What can you do? You know what I mean? Like, I know I, I definitely tried to do everything I could to convince him to want to be there. Uh, but ultimately, I also understand when people are at a place where they just feel like they need a change to kind of reboot themselves. I also understand that and respect it. Did it, did it hurt? Absolutely. <laughs> it was it was a it was a blow to the gut. I remember being pretty depressed the first few days, you know, just sitting at home with my wife and just like, man, like I didn't even get a shot. Like I really wanted to coach this dude. Because I know how good he is. That was probably one of the tougher things that I went through during that time. For all of us, that wasn't an easy decision for anybody. It wasn't like everybody was like celebrating that they made that move. It was it was tough. The biggest asset the Knicks received from the Porzingis trade was flexibility. Dealing Porzingis along with Hardaway and Lee unlocked enough salary cap space for the Knicks to sign two maximum salary free agents. Mike Volkanoff says at the time, the deal was viewed as a signal to the rest of the NBA. I think there's a sense that, okay, the, the Knicks had to know that something good was coming their way. One, because they opened up $71 million in cap space, right? Like at some point, there's just a point of diminishing returns to cap space. You don't need to open up $71 million. You, you can get it if you want it later on. Uh, two, because you, you traded away your homegrown all-star to do it, right? Like you don't do that unless there's a really good reason to do so. And three, if you remember about a month later, James Dolan went on the radio and said so himself. You know, he's, you know, my executive team is telling me that agents and people around the league are, you know, saying they want to come here. And we hear from people all the time, right? From players, from, you know, representatives. It's about who wants to come. And I can tell you from what we've heard, I think we're going to have a very successful offseason when it comes to free agents. There was this just strong sense emanating out of the Knicks organization that they were going to hit it big in free agency. And, you know, at some point, it just came straight from James Dolan's mouth. In that appearance on the Michael Case show, James Dolan did not mention Kevin Durant by name, but it never needed to be said. The entire basketball world knew the Knicks were targeting Durant. Kevin Durant to the Knicks, uh, that storyline loomed over the entire season, especially in New York. I remember earlier in the season, maybe it was around when the whole KD Draymond Green thing happened. Maybe it was a little bit after. But, you know, from the beginning of the season, basically, like you talk to people and they're like, oh, yeah, KD's coming to New York. You know, like some people were whether, you know, whether they were full of shit or not, were saying, uh, you know, oh, yeah, one of KD's people told the Knicks he was coming or this happened and I know it's happening. You know, like that was, I think, ever present around the league. And so many people were, were just like in the know, thinking they were in the know, saying that this was going to happen. Ian Begley says the idea that Durant would sign with the Knicks extended into Durant's own inner circle. I think a lot of the narrative about Kevin going to the Knicks and the strength of that narrative was was based on like legitimate people around Durant telling others that hey he's it's gonna happen so it wasn't just out of thin air that the idea of Kevin coming to New York wasn't pulled out of thin air it was said by legitimate people around him
Durant to the Knicks felt like a foregone conclusion. And for the team he was playing on at the time, Durant's upcoming free agency was becoming the dominant issue within the locker room. This would have been around game 9, 10, 11. I mean, I know it was November, an infamous day uh, for the Warriors. Anthony Slater covers the Warriors for the Athletic. You know, it, it was a play late in the game. They are in a very close tied game at the time with the Clippers. With three seconds left in the fourth quarter, Draymond Green secures the rebound for the Warriors. Durant is standing next to him, calling for the ball, looking to get off one final shot for the chance to win the game. But Draymond takes off down the court and eventually turns the ball over, sending the game into overtime. Slater says Durant was clearly upset with Draymond's decision. They walk over to the bench, normal, angry NBA huddle after a bad play, but it does erupt into something that seems a bit different than, hey, he's just mad because they turned it over at the end of a game. Now, at the time, you know, we don't. it's not like it was mic'd up for the world and we could hear what was being said, but it was clear... Like, it was an uncomfortable huddle, and DeMarcus Cousins is is pulling one of them away, and we came to learn that the conversation was about Durant's future and the tension that it had caused in the season already. And remember, we're only like 10 games into the season. Marcus Thompson for The Athletic reported at the time, Draymond was furious over how Durant was talking to him. That pushed Draymond to call Durant a bitch several times and then accused Durant of making an entire season about himself and his upcoming free agency. The argument between the team's two stars was so ugly, the Warriors suspended Draymond for a game. I think Draymond Green's strategy early in that season was let's get it out on the table. What is, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, let's kind of get it out on the table. And I think, I mean, he just did it non-tactfully, and he ended up roaring at him in front of the public and to a point that he got suspended and then it became such a major story. I mean, we're, we are still talking about it today and it is known as like the pivot point of that season and the pivot point uh, that ended Durant's tenure with the Warriors where really it was a buildup. And clearly, I mean, that was the, the release of tension of a buildup. It really boils down to like Kevin Durant's lack of commitment to that point and the fact that he had smart veteran teammates that knew where it was going. In a season where Golden State was going for their third straight NBA title, all the speculation around Durant's free agency festered like an open wound for the Warriors. It was like Draymond had sparked a tidal wave of like never-ending commentary, psychoanalysis, which Durant hates, right? I mean, one of his least favorite things is people on first take and undisputed and like, you know, what is Kevin Durant thinking and, and, and why, you know, what Draymond did was like, times that by 10. He basically shot some steroids into it by even just doing what he did in Staples Center. At one point that season, Durant went radio silent. For days, he simply stopped talking to the media. After the Knicks traded Porzingis, the silence only increased the tension. All that tension had to go somewhere. And it came out during the post-game press conference after a Warriors win about a week after the Porzingis deal. So we've noticed that you hadn't talked for a while. Um, is it anything to do with anything on your mind, or has it just been coincidence that you haven't talked what, for some time? Why do you care? Our understanding was he wasn't going to talk again. That was like, you know, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to. And then suddenly he just kind of bolts towards the media room, and one of the PR guys like, I guess he's talking. Because you usually talk. Oh, well, I, feel like, I didn't feel like talking the last couple of days. It was anything in particular? No, I just didn't feel like. Anything to do with conversation about free agency? 
And that's the conversation you're going to have. And he went up and, and you know, he kind of had that, you know, if you play like, you know, Sports Center plays like top 10, you know, blow ups of all time at a press conference setting, he's probably in it now for, for what he said. You've obviously been around the noise for so long. Is it bothering you more this year? Is it louder this year? It's unnecessary. And if you actually listen to the full thing within it, he's like, I don't know who traded Porzingis. I didn't have nothing to do with that. I have nothing to do with the Knicks. I don't know who traded Porzingis. They got nothing to do with me. I'm trying to play basketball. Y'all come here every day, ask me about free agency, ask my teammates, my coaches, you rile up the fans about it. That he had the bigger press conference blow up uh, directed at Ethan. Yeah, you grow up. Come on, bro. Slater is talking about Ethan Strauss, who also covered the Warriors for the Athletic. During that silence-breaking press conference, Durant focuses attention directly on Strauss. I come in and go to work every day. I don't cause no problems. I play the right way. Well, I try to play the right way. I try to be the best player I can be every possession. What's the problem? What am I doing to y'all? Durant was upset over a story Strauss wrote, focusing on the tactics Durant used to avoid the press during his media blackout. But after that explosive press conference, Slater says there was a sense around the team that what Durant did was a positive. While it created another storm that was debated and discussed for weeks on end, to me that I remember even at, in, the, in the days after the team was like, I'm glad he did it. I'm glad he kind of got that off his chest. I'm glad instead of just allowing the silence to create more you know, chatter, he kind of got out as the face of, of like, hey, I'm fighting back against this. He didn't say he wasn't leaving, but he was basically saying like, I'm just here to play basketball and figure it out. In February of 2019, the prevailing thought was that Durant was going to go to the Knicks. Slater wasn't 100% sure, but he knew definitively that Durant was done in the Bay. You would talk to people, you know, and obviously it was the conversation around the team at all times. It was the conversation around the league at all times. So whoever you talk to, most people were like, Knicks, just hinting, yeah, Knicks, that's that's what we're hearing. That's what business people are hearing. That's what opposing players, different stuff. You know, it's such a gossipy league. And most of the gossip was the Knicks. I never, and I, you know, I just not like I reported it either. I never had like concrete evidence. Like it's definitely the Knicks. It was just, that's kind of what the gossip was. And on the ground, it was clear it wasn't going to be here anymore. That was the main thing. The buzz got louder and louder throughout the season that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving wanted to play together in New York. But beneath that buzz were whispers that the two superstars were looking past the garden at the other NBA team in the city. You know, it started to come out in May that Kyrie was was more so leaning toward the Nets, but obviously he had those thoughts way before May. You started to hear like little little hints of it in March, April, but and this is my fault. I mean, I I heard the whispers, but I everything about Kyrie and Kevin coming to the Knicks was so much louder than it was like, well, okay. I mean, I that, that there could be something there. The Brooklyn Nets, the little brother basketball team that no one wanted. The franchise that bounced from Teaneck, New Jersey, to Long Island, to the swamps of the Meadowlands, to Newark, before finally landing in Brooklyn. The fucking Brooklyn Nets. Was anyone in New York even a Nets fan? No. <laughs> Not a single Nets fan. Kavitha Davidson is a sports and culture writer at The Athletic and host of the Culture Calculus podcast. As a sports fan growing up in Washington Heights, a neighborhood in Manhattan, 
Davidson says that people weren't exactly walking around in Nets gear. And let me tell you, no Brooklyn Nets fans are natives unless they are actual native Brooklynites. But even native Brooklynites, man, like it says more about the Knicks that native Brooklynites were able to be turned away from their fandom because they just felt so betrayed to then switch their allegiances to to the Brooklyn Nets. Maybe one. Maybe one. Uh, my, bu- my buddy, one of my best friend's brothers ended up being a diehard New Jersey Net fan. But I mean, aside from that, very few. The Ringers John Jastrzemski, a Staten Island native, says there was a period of time in the early 2000s that the Nets had an opportunity to grow their fan base but it just didn't happen. When the Knicks kind of hit their downturn, trade of Patrick Ewing, Jeff Van Gundy resigning, that was when the Jason Kidd, Richard Jefferson, Kenyon Martin teams really got good and went to back-to-back finals. So you would think like uh, a bunch of teenage kids would be like, oh, I'm going to go jump ship. I'm going to go root for the uh, team that's going to the NBA finals. Really didn't happen. Really didn't happen. Maybe one or two said, I'm going to go be a New Jersey Net fan, but... You kind of had it ingrained in you in that point. You were a Knicks fan. Geographically, the Knicks and the Nets have always been near each other. But in terms of fan interests, they might as well be on different planets. When I was at SOI, it was Knicks 1, 1, 1. Knicks was like 1, 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D. And then Nets was like, oh, if they maybe did something, they'd be number five. Bleacher Report's Taylor Rooks learned about that firsthand as an anchor at SNY, the local sports TV station. Like, right, it was still, they were the last kind of team. Sometimes it felt like, and trust me, I know New York is a hockey city. People love their hockey here. But I would say we talked about hockey sometimes a bit more than we talked about the Nets, which, you know, to me is different because I love basketball. But I would say the Nets were definitely one of the, the lower teams on the totem pole. It just wasn't really the thing. It was almost a footnote. The Nets' status as second-class citizens has been embedded in the fabric of the franchise. Here's the rub, and this is the original sin of the Nets-Knicks rivalry. Bob Windrum is the editor and co-founder of Nets Daily, a popular Nets fan website. As a Nets fan for decades, Windrum is intimately familiar with the NBA's version of the Red Sox selling Babe Ruth to the Yankees. In 1976, the New York Nets, led by Dr. J and Julius Irving, were preparing to move from the ABA to the NBA. The Nets come to the NBA. Julius comes, you know, is going to come to the NBA. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated in their season preview as a as a net. But to get into the NBA, the Nets will have to pay the league a $3.2 million entry fee and pay the Knicks nearly $5 million. The owner of the team at the time was not flush with cash. Roy Bow, again, not super wealthy um, as an owner, owned the Islanders, which at that point were you know, or a much better investment. Irving wanted a bigger contract as as he was moving on to the NBA stage. The Nets didn't have the cash. The Nets have to sell Irving's contract to the 76ers at the very last minute before the before the season is to begin. And the Nets come into the NBA and have a horrible season. And from that point on, they're behind the eight ball. If they had been able to keep him, um, they would have been one of the most exciting franchises. And maybe the Knicks understood that. After the franchise's first season in the NBA, the Nets moved from Long Island to New Jersey, playing a few seasons in Piscataway before settling into an arena in the swamps of the Meadowlands. You're referring to Brendan Byrne Arena, as I would know it. 
the most mediocre politician ever to have an arena named after him. John Hollinger would go on to become the vice president of basketball operations for the Memphis Grizzlies. But as a kid growing up in Jersey, Hollinger was just another basketball fanatic who knew it was easier to see NBA games in the Meadowlands than getting into Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden, and we got this place out in the swamp named after a named after a governor that, I mean, it wasn't like terrible or anything. It was just like, if, if you name the most famous people in New Jersey history, like he would have been like 78, you know, like. Can we name it after like Thomas Edison, maybe like, you know, <laughs> the Nets arena in the Meadowlands wasn't exactly known for its atmosphere. The experience at the Meadowlands uh, with Brendan Burns slash Izod was probably a little more, a little more corporate feeling and a l- little more antiseptic, I guess. And, you know, the fact it was, I mean, it was in the middle of the suburbs, right? Uh, you know, it was convenient for me because it was a 20 minute drive from my house, but for people who were working in New York, probably not as much, right? Every year, Izod was rated the worst uh, sports venue in North America by a survey of Sports Business Journal. I mean, every single year it was last. And, you know, there were other issues as well, but, you know, it was not, it was not, uh, it was not promising long term, that's for sure. I went to Continental Arena, and I guess it was the IZOD Center at some point as well. I, I remember going to Knicks to, to games at, at that shithole. <laughs> Kavitha Davidson. Oh my God, it was dank. It it felt it was dark, but also felt like it had halogen lighting for some reason. Like it it, it, it like it looked like it was lit like a hospital. I can't. I it's been obviously decades, but like that like the lighting situation was one of my was one of my most vivid memories of, of that place. The seats were too small. I mean, it was also the the New Jersey Nets, you know, like they didn't, there was no atmosphere really there. Money was always an issue for the Nets franchise. At times, it seemed like the team was going to make certain deals just to keep the lights on. Like in the 2003 draft, when the Nets essentially traded a pick that would become Kyle Korver for a fax machine. The Nets have the 51st pick, second round. They don't have a lot of roster spots and you know they're they're short on cash. So for the grand total of $125,000, the Nets sell the 51st pick to the 76ers who take Kyle Korver. That money is so needed, they go out and they use it for three things. The fax machine is one of the three things. They also repave the parking lot and they paid for summer league expenses. But the most famous piece is the fax machine, and as Bobby Marks has said, well, it did collate. So, I mean, and and that was sort of typical. It was emblematic of, of how bad things were. Those money issues would disappear with the arrival of a six foot eight inch, jet ski riding, Russian billionaire mining tycoon named Mikhail Prokhorov. For me, life, and business in particular is a big game. If you could afford to do anything, would you do this? And hire a production company to put it to... That is a report from 60 Minutes back in 2010. Correspondent Steve Croft is narrating over video that shows Prokhorov doing flips on his jet ski in the water. Croft continues to build an incredible portrait of Prokhorov, a larger-than-life figure, an adrenaline junkie, a sports addict, a martial arts expert, and someone so rich 
that he owns a 200-foot yacht but doesn't even know where it is. Well, I think the first thing that stood out was the 60 Minutes interview he did. It was really cool. He was like a James Bond character. Arena Pavlova was the president of Onexo Sports and Entertainment, the holding company that owned the Nets. Pavlova was Pokharov's direct representative in the United States, overseeing the franchise and the move to Brooklyn. And it's funny because um, I was getting all of his mail, and apparently that 60 Minutes segment was very popular with the prison population. So I started getting a lot of mail from Michael saying, hey, if you can hire an attorney for me and blah, 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 and get me out, I promise I'll play for you for free. So uh, that was pretty entertaining. Prokhorov brought the New Jersey Nets in the spring of 2010. The team was coming off a horrible 12-70 and 70 season, still two years away from moving to Brooklyn. The Nets found a temporary home in Newark at the Prudential Center. It was sad. I think I was pretty shocked by the fact that we couldn't give tickets away. I mean, literally coming out of uh, the PATH station, uh, there are just people offering tickets, you know, sometimes for a dollar, sometimes for free. And it was just very sad, you know, to sit there in an empty arena. And especially since I was representing ownership, it's not like I could get up and, you know, leave in the middle of a game. And yeah, it wasn't a good team on the court. It was a pretty sad environment on the business side. So, you know, everyone was really hopeful and optimistic looking forward that things were going to change soon. One of the primary drivers of the new Nets culture change came from another owner of the team. He owned just a tiny sliver of a percentage but had a huge impact on the franchise's transformation. Well, the ownership, we have decided that the official name for the Nets will uh, be the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn Nets. Yeah, which makes me excited. Right, see, I'm really giddy right now. Jay-Z, Brooklyn's own, became the face of the Nets as the team was moving to his home borough. One of the key parts of the move was the complete rebrand of the Nets. Pavlova says Jay-Z was a major factor in developing the look of the new Brooklyn Nets. You know, he was a huge contributor. His team was a huge contributor to the whole rebranding thing and actually getting us getting us approval from the NBA on the black and white uniforms because there was resistance to that initially. You know, he's a super creative guy. He has access to the best people in the business, sports and entertainment. Um, so I think, you know, he was very active at those board meetings initially. And then, of course, he started the sports agency and had to leave us. Uh, but yeah, while I was there, um, especially during the arena construction period, yeah, he, he was helpful and pretty active. The new Nets ownership were doing all they could do to draw attention to the team as they moved to Brooklyn. And sometimes that meant taking on the legacy basketball franchise in the city. It wasn't mean-spirited, but I, I think Michael understood better than the Knicks that, um, you know, it's kind of, it's good for everyone to have some controversy, have some fun. In 2010, during the summer of the decision, the Nets commissioned a massive mural that covered the side of an entire building in Midtown. The building they chose sat directly across the street from the garden in the line of sight of Knicks owner James Dolan. It was Jay-Z, Michael, with the Nets logo and the uh, phrase Blueprint to Greatness. And it, you literally, you, you couldn't miss it. Walking into MSG, walking out of Penn Station, it was right there. So then I heard that Jim Dolan actually complained to the NBA and said that it's intimidating to his employees, uh, which was kind of silly. But again, it was, it was good to stoke up some controversy, and I think Michael recognized it. For the first time in the franchise's history, the Nets were aiming to compete directly with the Knicks for attention, fans, and eventually 
NBA superstars. The Knicks are the 800-pound gorilla. You know, they are the incumbents. They are with the mecca and the history and the legacy and an amazing fan base that'll go to, like, shitty games despite, you know, how bad the team is. But they're there supporting them or even screaming at them. But they're super passionate and super loyal. So I think, you know, the... The smarter way to play it would have been to just kind of ignore, you know, the Nets. But Michael, by doing those things, he made sure that he was not going to be ignored and the Nets were not going to be ignored. Now, the Nets under Prokhorov made incredibly damaging and costly decisions in their pursuit for attention. The team sent four years of first-round picks to the Boston Celtics for Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, both of whom were in their mid-30s. The picks the Nets gave up allowed the Celtics to draft Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And Boston used another one of the Nets' picks to trade for Kyrie Irving. The move is indefensible, but it was all done to change the perception of the Nets' franchise. And all those failures brought Pavlova and the Nets to hire Sean Marks, the new Nets' general manager who had to do the impossible. We build a bad team without draft picks, without talent without any clear pathway to success. I mean, I knew he was going to be a star, but the results now and, you know, the fact that we got three superstars and it wasn't even, you know, trades, they wanted to come to Brooklyn. Sean has created that kind of environment that really attracts stars. And that's what he said he was going to do when, you know, he was uh, he first interviewed for the job. It's just that, you know, we all thought at that point it's a pipe dream, but... Here it is, you know, less than five years later. It's amazing. Coming up, we'll dive into Durant and Irving's decision to choose the Nets over the Knicks. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
Adrian Rojanowski reporting that Kevin Durant is in fact headed to Brooklyn to join Kyrie Irving and DeAndre Jordan. I'm Rachel Nichols. We are here June 30th, 2019. For months, Knicks fans have been dreaming of that day. Visions of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving signing with the Knicks. Instead, June 30th turned from a dream into a nightmare. To me, that's a that's like a come to Jesus moment for the Knicks. There've been so many. It's hard it's hard to say, oh, this is the moment where you should have figured it out. Crooked Media's Jason Concepcion. Concepcion is a lifelong Knicks fan. These two top free agents who you had circled and circled and circled and underlined and targeted and done everything that is like within the vague bounds of not tampering to legitimately try and lure them to New York, to to have them go absolutely want to play in the area but not for your team look in the mirror and figure out what's wrong with the way you've been running the team look in the mirror and figure out why top players don't want to play for you figure out why the rookie the guy you drafted as a rookie doesn't want to literally wants to force his way out look in the mirror and figure those things out and fix yourself when the knicks lost out on lebron in 2010 it hurt but most Knicks fans knew there was a good chance LeBron wasn't going to come. In 2019, with Durant and Irving, losing those two to the Nets felt like a gut punch. It's pretty difficult to put into words how disgusted I am, how depressed I am about the New York Knicks. Stephen A. Smith, commentator and Knicks fan, on ESPN after Katie and Kyrie chose the Nets. This is the absolute worst day in the history of the New York Knicks franchise. It's the worst day for me, too. The New York Knicks have lost New York to the Brooklyn Nets. For years, an excuse Knicks fans used for why the team didn't get big-time free agents was that the players simply didn't want to play in New York. But Durant and Irving choosing the Nets, choosing New York, but not the Knicks, proved that old excuse was a fallacy. CP from Knicks Fan TV. I, I definitely couldn't believe it. So when decision day happened... Again, them choosing the Nets was like, you know, it, it, it was like, come on. Because it, it's like it's like your little brother getting that prize over you, you know, at Christmas. It, it's your little brother getting that brand new Tonka truck and, and you getting a book. You know what I mean? And and so you just, even though it's still a Knicks town, you don't want to see your little brother win. You don't want to see them, you know, happy or, or getting anything that, that you can't get. So it was just one of those things, man. I would have rather any other team, if you would have stayed in Golden State, if you would have, you know, went somewhere else, I would have been fine with it. But the fact that he went right in our backyard and went to Brooklyn, you know, leaves a bad taste in your mouth, no doubt. So what was it? Why did Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving decide to choose the Nets? Why is it? Why, let me ask you a question. Why is it hard for people to not understand? Rich Kleiman is Kevin Durant's manager and business partner. Oddly, in the summer of 2019, after Bobby Portis signed with the Knicks, Portis told Mike Vorkanoff that players within the NBA knew in February of that season that Durant and Irving were heading to Brooklyn. We asked Kleiman what was significant about February. You're asking this man at this point now to like understand like exactly what his thought process was and why and what played a role in everything over the course of the year. I think these things are way more fluid. I don't think anything happened in February. I think that it was more probably a reference to, 
I think it was around like their conversation at the all-star game or something along those lines. But I just think that like, I think that it's hard. Why is it? Why? Let me ask you a question. Why is it hard for people to not understand? And I want to understand this myself. Why is it hard for people to understand that free agency is a bit more of a, like it's a, it's not as much of like a WWF or like entertainment thing for the players as it is for us, for fans, for media, you know what I mean? And that those like, moments and part of the movie script they don't exist like that it's a little bit more fluid like i think i mean i don't know i really don't know why february i think though maybe just because that's like the point in the season where then the steam picks up and people start talking more and trade deadline and some teams are out of it so you're already talking about free agency i feel like kevin felt as though he would be set up you know with people that he liked bleacher reports taylor rooks was one of the first journalists to interview durant after he made his decision to sign with the Nets. Right, like him and Kyrie are close. He wants to play with his friends. And, you know, we're seeing that now that the Nets have James Harden. He enjoys being around people that he actually likes to be around. I think he knew that the Nets were really going to cater to Kevin, right? Like be, create an environment that worked for him. Kevin is a team first guy um, and they see a future, you know, with him. I think Kevin also really wanted to be in New York, right? Like I think he likes, you know, this big market, but it was really the, the, perfect, the perfect place for him. Of course, the Knicks are New York's basketball team. But Rook says there's a perception about the Knicks among players that hurts the team in free agency. The Knicks have almost become synonymous with this like crazy franchise, right? That you never know what's gonna happen or what the people are gonna say. I mean, I know the Knicks have missed out on people because of that reputation. I know that, you know, for a fact that they have missed out on people because of how they view the franchise, how they think they'll be treated. But I know that the Knicks have kind of, you know, hurt themselves based on the things that they have done. And to me, a lot of it is more so James Dolan. So much of it is the reputation that it seems that he has. Like, when do people say good things about James Dolan? You know, I think players, they just kind of go with the things that they have heard. And when you have heard nothing good about James Dolan, you start to think that that's not a person that you want to play for. The problem is that his reputation does hurt the Knicks. Fox Sports' Chris Broussard. We all know what he did with Charles Oakley. And Charles Oakley is a very respected former player, not only in New York, but throughout the league. Everyone, for the most part, loves Oak. Uh, the media, current players, former players, you know, Oak, Oak's got major respect. And so when Dolan disrespected him the way he did in Madison Square Garden, that resonated with many players. And so now the Knicks are at a point where with Dolan as the owner, many players just don't want to play for him. And so if all things are equal, meaning if another team is offering the same amount of money as the Knicks, if the basketball situation is comparable to the Knicks, and if the player isn't just a diehard, I've got to get to New York, I want to play in New York then the Knicks may very well lose out on situations like that because the deciding factor could be James Dolan. I think a lot of fans look at the Knicks as a brand and expect these younger players who, in their, in their lifetime, don't remember the Knicks being good. The closest Durant has gotten to revealing why he decided against signing with the Knicks was during an interview 
with Hot 97 Radio in New York. Durant says for most current NBA players, it has been too many years since the Knicks were contending for championships like they were in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? It's like the cool thing right now is not the Knicks. It was a small throwaway line during a long interview, but it speaks to a larger issue that we've been detailing here on this series. The Knicks haven't been serious contenders under James Dolan's ownership. Since trading Patrick Ewing, the Knicks have had four winning seasons in 20 years. The bad trades, embarrassing basketball, the off-the-court scandals, the team's sustained streak of failure has altered the perception of the Knicks franchise in the eyes of the current generation of the NBA stars. They simply don't understand what it's like when the Knicks are great because they've never seen it. Yes, I believe New York City is the mecca of basketball, totally. I didn't know at that point how much we could continue to include the Knicks necessarily in that conversation because, you know, how long do you get to live on what a team used to be? When she was an anchor at SNY during the Phil Jackson era, Rooks discussed on air how far the Knicks had fallen in the basketball hierarchy. Are the Knicks still this fantastical idea that we talk about when we talk about the height of basketball and the height um, of the NBA? Are the Knicks still this thing that we create them to be in our head? Like, how long do we live on how good they were? And how much of this is because of on the court stuff and how much of it, of it is off the court stuff? Because I think to, at that point, it was equal. You know, when you're having Charles Oakley kicked out of the garden, like that is another teardown of the Knicks. All of that to me kind of fed into what I felt the culture was of the garden at that time and really what the culture wasn't um, at the garden at that time. And on the final episode of Shattered, we'll go inside the garden and look at the culture that James Dolan has built. With Dolan, it felt like babysitting. Felt like everybody was aware that there was this man child that had reckless emotional reactions to things without a lot of, a lot of pragmatism or a lot of logic. Much more on that next time on Shattered. Subscribe to Shattered wherever you get your podcast to check out more great stories about sports and culture, plus ad-free episodes of Shattered. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Shattered to get a special offer on a monthly subscription. Shattered is part of The Athletic's culture coverage. Shattered is executive produced by Chuck D., Lori Bula, and Matt Havia. Mike Smeltz is the producer. J.P. Hesser is the engineer. Taya Papula is the audio editor. 